Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody, from a rather cold, blustery, wet San Francisco on November the 9th, 2021, morning time in the west coast of the United States. It's later in the afternoon in Europe, um, early evening, or perhaps even later evening in Asia, wherever you are. I hope you're well. Um, people often ask me why I do this show. It's perhaps sometimes it occurs to me that's a good question. Uh, we do a number of shows a week, and I like to think that we're building up a kind of video library of authors talking about their books and their ideas, writers in particular, but also filmmakers, some visual artists. Uh, the idea, of course, of the library is an attractive one. It's one of the core tenets of civilization. Uh, and keen on is probably not really a library, although I guess in some ways it touches on the the ideal of the digital library, the, this infinite space where you can store ideas and individuals. Uh, but books, of course, remain core to the ideal historically and in a contemporary sense of libraries. And I'm thrilled today, there's a new book out on libraries. Rather than core, uh, it's a historical book about uh, libraries, uh, but rather than being called the library. It's called Library. It's by two academics at uh, the University of St. Andrews, just outside Edinburgh in Scotland, Andrew Pettigree and Arthur de Wedewen, both very distinguished scholars of libraries. And I'm curious, oh, it's called The Library, but uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, my understanding, at least in terms of the, the lower thirds, is that it's called library. Should it be library or the library? Let me bring in uh, Andrew Pettigree. Andrew, uh, have I made uh, a terrible error here in calling your book library rather than the library? Or does it really matter? Well, to, to us, it is the library. But the second half is really important, a fragile history because it emphasizes the fragility rather than the permanence of the library. Uh, and that's our central theme through our study of 2000 years of library history. Fragility, uh, Andrew, uh, book people are always whining about something or other. Uh, is this a particularly dangerous moment in the history of the library or a library has always been under assault? Well, I have to say that uh, we're not whining because what we're saying is uh, the accumulation and uh, dispersal and reorganization of library communities is the natural ecology of collecting. Um, so the present uh, crisis of the libraries in inverted commas is first of all, very partial. There are still 2.6 million libraries in the world, which is a strange definition of a crisis. Uh, but it's no more of a challenge to reorganization than at any point in history. Uh, and one of the things we found most interesting about this, um, about this story, about which my co-author Arthur really did a lot of work, 
was the importance of the personal library in the story. So whereas most library histories have to this point looked at the beautiful buildings, major institutional collections, we think that in many instances during the bad years, it's the personal library that sustains libraries uh, in existence. Well, let's bring in your co-author, uh, Arthur, um, or not Arthur, Arthur de Wedewen. Arthur, let me rephrase the question more brutally. Um, mm -hmm. Why should we care about libraries? Why do they matter in our age of Google where everything is accessible uh, and nobody goes to the library anymore? It doesn't seem as if anyone goes to the library anymore. Well, I think I think libraries are still <clears throat> critically important because really libraries, um, it's just about the, 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 the careful curation of knowledge. And that's really what libraries um, are, are in their essence. They're a, 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 a purposefully assembled collection uh, of books. And we interpret books in, in, in the broadest sense possible. Um, you know, the, if you go back to the, the very earliest libraries, um, uh, your books would be on uh, clay tablets and, and later on. So does this show, does this show uh, Arthur, does this show count as a yeah. book? Um, I think I think this show um, uh, could potentially, if you if you, I mean, you were in your introduction talking about the fact that you have a, a rather wonderful library going on here of a variety of uh, of, of interviews and, and podcasts. So um, you may be stretching the actual definition of a book there, but in a sense, you're still talking about a library because you are purposely creating it, curating a um, a, a collection uh, of knowledge that can be can be consumed by people. So, you know, that's uh, the latest iteration of a library. And so we should be, uh, we should be caring about them and, and studying about them. But one of the key points of our book is to say, you know, we shouldn't always be saying, um, look, everything that we've lost with every technological change, we, we lose things. This is not always a bad thing. We should, um, you know, in every, every society with every technological change, people continue to use things of the old that they enjoy. Uh, while also uh, embracing parts of the new. Uh, Arthur, you've uh, you've you uh, with Andrew have written uh, previously a, a book about the Dutch Republic and the birth of modern advertising, um, and the Bookshop of the World, uh, making and trading books in the Dutch Golden Age. So you're an authority on um, the the great 16th and 17th centuries in in Holland. You you begin the book. Um, with a reference to a man called Hugo Blotius. Why do you begin with Blotius and the anecdote about him? Well, the, the story about Blotius is important because Blotius is, uh, is, a, is a Flemish Dutch scholar who is appointed as librarian to Emperor Maximilian II in Vienna. And when, um, when Blotius shows up in Vienna to take up his post, he finds that the emperor has a, has a massive library. He's got, he's got over 7,000 volumes, which for this period is, is really, really considerable. But he finds that the emperor has taken absolutely no interest in. The books have basically been consigned uh, to an attic. And we start this story because it's- I have uh, to throw in a really bad joke here. Um, yeah. Uh, the, rather than the emperor not having any clothes, the emperor has no books, right? Absolutely. Well, he has uh, he, he has all the books, but he's talking. He's almost embarrassed about them. He's you know, that, hidden the, the books. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the funny thing because a century earlier, um, his uh, predecessors as emperors and the great prince of Europe, if they had a collection like this, you know, they would have boasted about it to the entire world. 
But because of the invention of printing, uh, which made books cheaper, made books more abundant, it, it sort of democratized what had previously been a luxury. So, you know, if you're an emperor, why would you be, be boasting about a library of, of a couple of thousand books if the local merchant down the street can also accumulate a library of this sort? And this is why, why Bloches was so exasperated uh, and why he set upon reinvigorating this library and trying to point out again to the emperor it was worth having this. But we should, of course, also realize that Bloches here is talking himself up. And this is something we see throughout the history of libraries. You know, whenever you get a new librarian coming in, uh, it's quite fashionable to say, uh, well, my predecessors uh, really, uh, really messed up. You know, I'm, 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 I've done the hard work here. So that's, it's a bit of a trope in that sense. Uh, Andrew, I've done some speeches to librarians and they're a tough lot. They're very <laughs> idealistic. Um, uh, your co-author, Arthur, Arthur talked about this idea this sort of rather sexy idea of the democratization of knowledge in the 16th century. Uh, and of course, it's a particularly attractive notion today. Um, is there a long history of this fetishization of the democratization of knowledge? And is it intimately bound up with the history of the library? Well, I don't think democratization has a particularly long history. Um, because until you get to the mid-19th century, people wouldn't necessarily have, uh, have um, uh, recognized it as a good thing. Um, uh, America was uh, a protagonist in that respect, but of course we know that democracy was um, uh, a very white democracy and didn't include women, so only a very partial uh, democracy even there. I think democracy is a product of industrialization, uh, when you get the huge growth of cities, the growth of an urban poor, people are seriously worried about the impact these people will have on society. They realize they've got to be brought into uh, the political process, uh, but they do not want them to dominate it and take away the power of established elites. And to some extent, the public library is a tool in this process of educating people to take their role in society. And this is why the public library movement is so very late in the history of libraries. Um, the librarians that you'll have spoken to, and they are a tough lot, uh, they argue their corner uh, very robustly, but I think responsibly, they will speak as if the public library is the natural order of events, but in fact, it really only occupies uh, 100 years of history. And in my view, the public library may have failed as an experiment had it not been for that uh, brilliant Scott that we lent to the United States, Andrew Carnegie, who founded 2,500 public libraries between 1885 and 1915 and really established the public library as a fixture in right. civil society. I want to come back to Carnegie later in this conversation because I think he's, he's critical uh, but I'm curious, in the beginning of the book, um, you refer uh, to um, uh, Henry Mayhew, the 19th century English, I guess he was a journalist, and, 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 and he was one of the first people to socially or do research on, on the poor of London. And, and he reported on the importance of reading amongst the poor, 
what do you think the work of people like social reformers like Mayhew in, 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 in the industrial world of the 19th century tell us about the role of books and reading um, amongst, uh, I use this word carefully, the, the, the working class, the underclass, certainly not the privileged class? Yeah, well, the work of Mayhew was very important in providing a sort of statistical basis for people's understanding of broader society. And of course, a produce, um, produce some very um, shocking results. On the other hand, these extremely well-intentioned uh, Victorian social reformers took a very uh, paternalistic and one might say patronizing attitude towards the industrial poor. And so this was to some extent also taken on by the new generation of trained librarians in the 19th century. So when they were- All men, I would assume, Andrew, were they? No women? Lots of women in the United States. And that's where, one way in which the um, um, uh, American library movement is differentiated from Britain. Um, by, the th by the beginning of the First World War, uh, uh, women made up at least 70% of the library profession in the United States, but nearer 30% in, in the United Kingdom. So um, America was well ahead of the trend there, but it didn't make them necessarily the fact that librarians were women less paternalistic in their attitude to their readers. And this is the huge tension in the public library movement. Um, they wanted the uh, urban poor to become educated but they didn't necessarily want them to do that by the sort of books they wanted to read. So they weren't, were they, they, were they very careful about stocking the work of a Marx or a Proudhon or other revolutionaries? It wasn't very, it wasn't so much a political censorship. It was, a, it was a, in terms of taste and whether the works were thought of as being suitable. Um, so they uh, avoided the sort of uh, penny dreadfuls, as they were known, the sort of shock murder stories and crime stories um, that actually at the end of a long day's uh, work was probably the only thing that Paul wanted to, um, to read. Um, there were some autodidacts um, among the working people, but on the whole, recreational literature was what they wanted rather than more instruction in their evenings. And so this was a tension that ran right through the public library movement, really until the 1970s, where the public libraries felt the uh, first danger to their existence. And they then be began stocking uh, cheap romances and such like books uh, to actually give them their clients what they wanted. Uh, Arthur, uh, go to a library today and uh, there are shelves full of books by D.H. Lawrence and Nietzsche. But as you note at the beginning of the book, um, Lawrence, who was, to borrow a, a, a couple of words from Andrew, was an auto from the working classes. Um, he, he wasn't a, a big fan of, uh, of, of public libraries. So there was, and, and I, I don't remember what Nietzsche wrote about libraries. I, I'd be surprised if he was hostile to them, but you seem to say he was, or certainly he influenced Lawrence to be hostile to libraries. 
What was it about the thinking of people like Lawrence and Nietzsche, who are now you know cultural intellectual icons, uh, that made them hostile to late nineteenth, early twentieth century libraries? Well, I think it, it goes back to to some of the things that that Andrew has already mentioned. This, this idea that you know the public library movement by this point was was a good 60, 70 years old, uh, in a sense that uh, the patrons who were coming through the doors uh, weren't picking up the books that someone like Lawrence was uh, was writing and that his, his, his clique was responsible for. So I think a, a, a real sense that, um, you know, everyone always wants, wants has, has a vision that the, what they conceive of as a library, what they conceive of as, as good or proper literature, that that should be shared by other people. But, you know, every, and this is something that goes, that continues to be a theme throughout the history of the library, that um, everyone who, who establishes a library, and this is very common before the public library movement, um, libraries are often founded by bequest or by donation, because they don't tend to have uh, big acquisitions budgets the way they do today. But this always means that, you know, the person who, who establishes the library, they've often amassed their collection at great expense and effort over time. But they struggle to conceive that their library or their their tastes may not be um, as interesting to other people, and I think that is a theme that 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 permeates as well the public library movement. Because you know, even when, when libraries have 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 restricted budgets, librarians need to make a decision: what are we going to acquire? What are we going to purchase? Are we going to invest money in you know when a new um, a great bestseller comes out that everyone wants to get a hold of. Are we going to invest and buy 12 copies, 50 copies, 100 copies? And what when uh, when the readers have then all consumed that book and next month they want an, another new bestseller? You're left with all this stock. And so, you know, there's, there's really complex issues there to think about how do libraries for a, a great and diverse public how do you offer them the same sort of diversity of literature that they will expect to consume? And that is one of the reasons why public libraries uh, have always had such a tough time. Also because there's so many other alternatives that are available to library users. And in the great, in, in, the, in the 19th uh, century, one of the great uh, alternatives was the, the circulating libraries, where, which were, which, uh, were commercial uh, initiatives, often run by booksellers, who would uh, lend out books um, in the in the UK, usually for about two pennies, uh, two pennies a book at a time, or a, a guinea a year. So this meant that people could constantly be getting acquiring new literature that had just come out, um, and you know get what they wanted um, and develop their own tastes. And this was something that simply could not. Um, take place in the public libraries. The library, Arthur, is a, your, your book, The Library is a History. These issues that you talk about between taste and public accessibility, accessibility, I mean, they weren't an issue in the earliest libraries, the libraries of antiquity, the library of Alexandria, for example, were they? Um, to a certain extent, yes, uh, they were, but we have, to, we have to be careful in thinking that most um, most great libraries, including that of, of Alexandria, were, were truly elite institutions. So they tended to be restricted to um, uh, much smaller circles, often of, of scholarly individuals, or in the case of the great Renaissance libraries, uh, the likes of which were 
collected by the, uh, the Dukes of Burgundy or, or Cosimo di Medici in Florence, really like-minded elite aristocratic audiences. So of course, it, to them, it always mattered what was what was in a library, but the potential um, the potential audience for them was much smaller. But as soon as you get into um, into the era, for example, of the, of the Reformation, uh, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, issues of what books should be in a library um, come come to are you know the dominating issue of the day. And this is an area in which many, um, uh, which many libraries are, are dispersed and, and destroyed, and their stock is uh, sold off for waste paper. Because if you are, uh, have become a Protestant city, and you have all these um, uh, Catholic monastic libraries in your town, the question becomes: Are we going to keep all these books, or are we going to burn them, sell them off, um, or, or, or do, do something else with them? Turn them into um, a waste paper? So these are questions that, that continue to uh, bedevil libraries um, uh, much long before the democratic movements of the 19th century. Uh, Andrew, uh, Arthur has brought up the Reformation. Whenever I think of, of libraries as a non-librarian and not as an authority on libraries, uh, I always, of course, think of Luther uh, and the revolution in printing, the invention of the Gutenberg press, it's hard to separate causality, whether Luther caused the invention of the press or the press created the invention of a man like Martin Luther and his radical ideas about the church. How did Luther and the invention of printing change the idea of the library? Well, there'd been printing from about 1450 onwards. So that means pretty much a good 70 years before Luther came on, on the scene. But I think you can still say that in a way he reinvented it. He certainly changed it in a, a very radical way by treating theology as something which could be shared with people who weren't clergy, uh, shared with lay people and in their own language. And that was very radical. Um, Luther had an extraordinarily practical view of the potentialities of print and took a very active role in the printing of his own books. He'd be in and out of the printer's workshop to see how they're getting on, to insist in high quality. And he also helped draw extra printers to Wittenberg, which until that point had been basically an outpost of European print. And now, thanks almost entirely to Luther, became almost the center. Now, the Reformation in general uh, had a rather mixed uh, consequence for printing. On the one hand, we see this move towards more vernacular printing, which was then followed by other forms of vernacular print, like news pamphlets and eventually newspapers. But on the other hand, it also divided the previously united European market into two, with a Catholic uh, side and a Protestant side. Now, that actually was very damaging because until this point, serious Latin books were normally published to be spread around Europe and were exchanged um, between printers. So instead of paying cash for a uh, group of books from, let's say, Basel or Frankfurt or Nuremberg, the Italians would pay in their own copies. And that sort of exchange mechanism meant that in a society which was cash poor, there just weren't enough coins around, 
uh, international trade could be could be managed. The problem was once you get to the point that Catholics are banning Protestant books and Protestants are um, not encouraging Catholic books, then that sort of exchange becomes far, far more difficult. And this competition is played out in a series of attempts to create new libraries in disputed territory like Poland, uh, virtually like forts, establishing your rights to this part of the, 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 the country. And then of course, if the opposition conquered that portion, they would dismantle those libraries and take them away. Now, they didn't destroy the books on the whole. What they did was they appropriated them because there was a clear understanding that if you um, were trying to make a case against another confession, you actually had to read their books to make that case. And the best- Well, that's why uh, the history of the library, or that's why the library has the subtitle of Fragile History, uh, I want to take a break now, but after the break, I want to come back uh, to Carnegie uh, and the modern ideal of the library and, of course, update it to our digital moment where libraries are particularly fragile. So uh, we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen. You can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. Well, we are back. Um, and uh, in the first uh, half of the show, uh, Andrew Pettigree talk, talked a little bit about uh, Andrew, another Andrew, the three Andrews. I'm Andrew Keen. Uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie, perhaps the greatest Andrew of the 19th century, the man who dedicated a vast fortune in part to reinventing public space, particularly around uh, libraries. Um, we had a show recently about redesigning the internet to function like a public park or perhaps like the kind of 
library that Carnegie um, invented. Uh, Arthur, what can we learn from Carnegie from the 19th century? Is he still relevant in terms of reinventing libraries in our digital age? Yeah, I would say absolutely so. I mean, the, the key thing of why Andrew Carnegie uh, was such a success is, is first of all, uh, he didn't do what many of the other rich, uh, the great um, magnates of, of steel and oil did, which was to collect books basically for themselves. Uh, the likes you see with, uh, uh, with J.P. Uh, Morgan, for example, uh, or with uh, Henry Folger of the Folger Shakespeare Library, where they invested all their money to uh, acquire um, expensive and rare texts. What Carnegie did was really try to provide uh, books uh, for communities, for the people. But the key thing about Carnegie wasn't that he imposed libraries upon communities. What he would say is he would go to a town council and say, um, you haven't got a, a, a public library, public library branch system. I would like to give you one. I'm going to give you the money uh, for uh, the building. But you, as community, in order to receive this, have to pledge 10% uh, of this sum every year to uh, keep the uh, for upkeep and repairs, but also to to, to acquire books and uh, and keep the stock new and relevant. So Carnegie put in a way a little bit of the burden. Uh, he allowed he, he gave the capital to get people started with libraries, but he put the burden on the communities themselves to say, you know, this is something that you really need to want. And I think that's something we see with, you know, libraries will um, tend to tend to be at their most fragile when people lose interest in actually using them, when they just become symbols of something. And whether that's a symbol of wealth or, or civic pride uh, or something that we just, you know, we feel libraries are good for other people, but not ourselves. And this is something we, we Andrew and I actually is, uh, uh, saw a lot when we were researching and, and writing this book is we we spoke to, to quite a lot of um, uh, campaigners uh, who wanted to save uh, particular public library uh, uh, branches uh, here in the UK, but also spoke to um, a lot of the council officials who were often tasked with making the decisions, you know, what do we keep, what do we shut? And it was really striking when we spoke to the campaigners that often the campaigners were very passionate uh, about saving libraries, but they were rarely active users of the libraries themselves. They really viewed the libraries again something for other people. Uh, Arthur, in the news today, uh, Elon Musk asked his followers on Twitter whether he should sell some of his Tesla stock, making billions of dollars. He's facing, according to one headline today, a 15 billion tax bill. Uh, you know, Musk is one Carnegie of the 21st century. Another is Jeff Bezos, who is spending his money blasting into space. A third is uh, Bill Gates, who's spending his money in fighting poverty, disease, and inequity. None of them are thinking very much about the library. Should the Bezoses and the Musks and the Gates of the world, do they need to take a leaf from uh, Andrew Carnegie and start thinking about the need to put some of their wealth back into libraries? And if they did, how? Well, I think I think they uh, could could certainly do. That. I should say though that the the Bill Melinda Gates Foundation has actually done quite a lot uh, to uh, to improve libraries around the world globally, especially with uh, um, um, ensuring that public libraries, particularly in the global south, have access to um, uh, more more new stock and and to Wi-Fi connections. So I think they have been doing quite a bit. But obviously, libraries are just one 
uh, of the many things in their portfolio. As for, uh, you know, I'm not going to, I don't think I'm in a position to tell Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos uh, what, what to do. In terms well, you, of you do, you can do that on this show. You have my permission. Uh, that, that's, that's rather marvelous. I, I mean, I would say that in, in some ways, I mean, um, you know, People will have different opinions about uh, about Amazon, and I don't I don't use it my, myself to buy books. But it's interesting to consider that with Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos has allowed for the creation of many many more personal libraries throughout the world, um, and in in that sense, possibly has even done the the library world uh, uh, a service. So you know, I think certainly the amount of money available um, uh, to these to these companies and to these to these men should allow them. Um, to improve public library systems worldwide. But I think we should always also approach these, these issues from the complexity that they deserve. And one of the key points of our book is, is that it's often personal book collections, personal libraries that continue to be uh, one of the driving forces uh, behind libraries and really keep the book alive. So I think the issue may be more complex uh, than it first seems. Uh, Arthur, a quick comment on Google Books. Uh... They were very controversial 10, 15 years ago. There's less talked about the threat to Google Books and this mass digitalization of, of books. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about the legacy of Google Books and the role of a, a search, a, a ubiquitous search engine like Google in creating online libraries? Well, I think it's certainly done, done a lot of uh, good in making text more easily uh, accessible. Um, I think the, the danger that continues to be the, the case with Google Books is that, uh, in a way, we, we have simply accepted that our literary heritage as a, as a, a global civilization will um, uh, remain dependent on, on a single company and on, on, on their software and the way they choose to present it. So we have, in that sense, you know, rather surrendered our, ourselves to that, which I think will continue uh, to be a threat. But you know, it's it's not something you uh, I think many people will will think about when they're just looking for um, I need I need quick access to this text and you know I use it use it almost every day for for that reason. So it's certainly certainly done wonders. But I do think we should be thinking quite carefully about uh, about the legacy and the uh, the amount of of, of power it, it gives what is ultimately just a corporation. Uh, Andrew, not all is gloom and doom when it comes to libraries. Um... Your, your book ends in, in some ways on quite a positive note, but it, as always, it's, when it comes to positive, it all seems to be happening somewhere else, particularly, inevitably, in Denmark. Uh, you talk very positively about the, the Black Diamond Library in Copenhagen, a magnificent structure for people watching. You can see the Wikipedia page of the Black Diamond uh, Library. You also write quite positively about the development of uh, municipal library systems in France. Uh, are Denmark and France the pioneers of 21st century uh, libraries? Well, I think the French media tech, the a sort of all-encompassing central facility for all members of the community is very, very important. And they seem to have turned what until um, the 1950s was a fairly moribund system of libraries. Um, into a really very modern, very successful, very popular uh, public utility. And this is involved uh, in about 60 towns in in France uh, building a new library. 
Yeah, here we have an image of the, the Bibliothèque Municipale de Nancy. So you say there are many initiatives uh, in, in provincial France, which is very un-French, because you normally think that all innovation in France happens in Paris. Actually, the, the, the provincial collections are fantastic. And we spent 10 years um, at an early stage of our work on, on books going round all these municipal libraries. And they were thrilled that someone was going anywhere else than Paris. So we were the heroes there. I should say that um, um, uh, Eastern Europe is another area where uh, public libraries are uh, very much valued. Uh, people particularly who experience life in uh, Eastern Europe before 1989 value the freedom to read uh, and not have their choice constrained by the communist regime. It's interesting that you bring up uh, Eastern Europe, Andrew. Um, recently, we had Dorothea Redai. She was one of the time most significant hundred people this year. She organized an LGBTQ fairy tale book in Hungary. We, of course, have the reappearance of a kind of rea reactionary neo-authoritarianism mm -hmm. in much of East Central Europe, particularly Hungary and Poland. How has the library become a battleground mm -hmm. uh, of this conflict between traditionalists, often Catholic traditionalists, and people like uh, Dorotia Ridai? Uh, uh, who are using the book to spread their ideas? Well, you know, the, uh, 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 the truth is that the the library has has always been a political space. It's always been a, a place of controversy. Um, the library in the time in 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 the fourteenth and fifteenth century, when libraries were smaller and more expensive, were a way of rich people showing off to their friends. Um, in the conflicts of the Reformation, people uh, built libraries, but also uh, attacked everybody else's libraries, going right through to the destruction of the, the, the library in Sarajevo at the beginning of this century. No, you write about a, that. It's a fascinating yeah. piece of the book. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a, a, a targeted attack to destroy, destroy the culture of your adversary. And something very similar and equally tragic happened in Sri Lanka to the major Tamil library in the 1980s. So it, it, it is no new thing for the conflicts to be fought out in libraries. What is perhaps um, more interesting is that it's um, often an upsurge of, of reader pressure, which leads either to the um, banning of certain books in the library uh, or to the renovation of the collection according to different social principles. Whereas in before the 1950s, it was really the librarians that were making that um, those decisions on, on, on behalf of the community. That's really a case for the library community of be careful what you wish for because they want a more activist uh, patron body but sometimes the activism of the patrons takes it to the library in different directions from the librarians themselves would have wanted. Andrew, do we need to rethink the book in the 21st century, the meaning of the book? Uh, had the London-based psychoanalyst Josh Cohen on the show recently. He's written a wonderful book about how books can be a guide for life. 
um, and thinking in a very psychoanalytical way about the work of many great 19th and 20th and 21st century writers. Is there still a need for the book to become more central to our existential crises of one kind or another? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You've got two contrasting stories here. The history of the library is one of fragility. The the history of the book is one of resilience. Um, The death Mm. of the book has been predicted so many times in the 20th century. It was to be replaced by microfilm. Then it was to be replaced by the CD-ROM. Now it's to be replaced by the digital, but people still keep on going back to their books because it's such a such a brilliant invention. It allows you to browse and no one has ever really been able to uh, to mimic the uh, experience of browsing in any of these other systems. And the tangibility of the book, I think, has a great deal to do with the, the amount of learning you can do with books and the way your memory is trained, not just by the intellectual experience of the text, but also photographically by the experience of the book on the page. So the book is is extraordinary in the way that it has um, dealt with all these pretenders. And if if you adopt new technologies to universally, the drawbacks of those new technologies um, are not all immediately apparent. I mean, I've just read a very interesting book on the relationship between Germany and Britain in the um, 19th century. And the author said, here are all the footnote references, but if you want the footnotes, you have to look on my website. So he didn't use up space in his book with all these references to the scholarly literature. Unfortunately, the link to the website is now broken. Um, So you've got half a book, half the information you need isn't there. And I'm sure at the time, this was the very forward thinking modern thing, modern thing to do, to make this a sort of hybrid, half internet, half text. It hasn't worked out well. And, you know, the whole of the digital surrogate for books depends on a constant supply of electricity. And in the year of COP26, are we absolutely confident that we'll have unrestricted access to the power that's necessary for this new um, uh, literature industry? So in that respect, the books, as you see, I'm surrounded by books, uh, are still a very good fallback. Yeah, you, you you opened another can of worms, Andrew, with COP26. That's probably enough for another show. Uh, but I do want to end um, with the internet because it's so ubiquitous. We're, of course, doing this on the internet. We had Pamela Paul on the show recently, the editor of the New York Review of Books. She has a new book out, um, What We've Lost, A 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. And one of the more memorable things she talked about was losing um, the young boy who loved books, who now has migrated to video games or other indulgences uh, online. Um, Arta, is that true? Uh, we did a, a show about William, uh, about John Steinbeck. I had the uh, 
bi- his biographer, brilliant biography, William Souder on the show. Can we get Steinbecks in the early 21st century or have we lost those young men who used to love to go to the library and surround themselves with books? Well, I, I, I don't I don't think we've we've lost it entirely. And and let me say let me let me start by saying that you know never before have so many books been published as as this year. Every year we we move uh, forward in history, so to speak. Uh, more books can continue to appear. And you know one of the, the privileges of being able to to teach at a at a university is that um, um, Andrew and I are constantly surrounded by by young people who who want to read. And you want to study, and and yes, they may be using digital resources uh, quite a lot, but I certainly don't see a great diminishing in, um, in in the love of young people for for literature. It may, of course, be 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 changing in exactly what it is they're reading, uh, but that that's always been 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 the case throughout history. You know, every generation has has new desires and, and new tastes, but I don't I don't think it's 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 doom and gloom in that sense. Well, your book, uh, The Library, A Fragile History, is certainly not all doom and gloom. There's some doom and gloom, but there's some very sunny moments. It's an excellent new book. The Library, it's not just called Library, A Fragile History. It's just out. And congratulations, Arta, on that. You, as I said earlier, you're talking to me from your office, the University of St. Andrews. Uh, What else should people be reading? And this is such a not only a, a, a book platform, Lit Hub, but a bookie show talking about the library. Any other particular books that you would encourage people to to enjoy uh, in November 2021? Arthur? I, 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 absolutely. I've got one, got one right here. It's a book by uh, Edward Wilson Lee. came out in 2018, uh, and it's called The Catalogue of Shipwrecked Books, Young Columbus and the Quest for a Universal Library. So you may think, you know, more more library. I've, I've had enough of libraries, but no, this is an absolutely absolutely wonderful book. It uh, discusses the story of the son of Christopher Columbus, uh, Fernando, um, who um, who had his had his mission in the early 16th century to to sort of recreate the lost library of Alexandria in, in his world, and really one of the first people to embrace the opportunities of the invention of printing to put together as many books as possible. And so this is this is really uh, a biography of this fascinating character that not only tells you a lot about about libraries and books, but really tells you quite a lot about the world of of Columbus, of his voyages, but also the um, the influence that had on Europe and the, in the expansion of of the European mind. And it's a really uh, a beautifully produced, beautifully written book. So I certainly recommend that one. Uh, Andrew, is anything? Ever, uh, sorry, has anything ever been written uh, on uh, on libraries better uh, than Borges' Library of Babel? Well, um, I would offer you two um, two non uh, nonfiction titles. Um, I think Sus- Susan Orleans' book, the Library Book, which weaves around the fire in the Los Angeles library. And of course, fire is a, a ubiquitous problem for, for libraries since the beginning of time. Uh, a really interesting reflection on the role of the libraries in community, not least as a, a place of last resort for, 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 for the homeless and the characters who turn up in libraries. And it's, it's a beautifully written book, which I 
strongly recommend. But I'd also just like to give a shout out to Tom Glynn's Reading Publics, New York City's Public Libraries, 1754 to 1911. Now, this is a very important book because it, the, the New York Public Library as we know it was actually incredibly late on the scene, not, not till the second decade of the, um, uh, of the 20th century did this iconic building open its doors. And Glenn explains why, and that is that in many places before a public library, they're absolutely stuffed with libraries of different types, uh, tending to different publics, and particularly in New York, which was this city which went from a relatively small Dutch and English city to this enormous uh, multicultural place in the course of a hundred years. And he tells the story of how libraries are involved in that, and I thoroughly recommend that as well as Susan Orlean's book. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Andrew and Arthur, so much. The Library, your new book, A Fragile History, is just out. Congratulations on the book. And thank you again for a really interesting conversation. Uh, and I, I'm sure we will talk again about books. After all, on LitHub, what else is there to talk about except books? Thank you so much. Keep well and keep producing. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keenon show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network. Uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have a, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keenon show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com, or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keenon. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not too distant future.